Okay, if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> page 809, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. The series is entitled, Unsearchable and Inscrutable, which are two phrases that Paul uses in the 11th chapter. We're doing Romans 9 to 11. It's uh, one fairly coherent line of reasoning and, and, and subject, 9 to 11. And Paul, at the very end, ends with, this is unsearchable, how unsearchable are his, his ways and, his, and how inscrutable are they. That is sort of where Paul ends up. Because there's times in this, there's times of such extreme depth in chapters 9 to 11 in Romans that you walk away knowing that you don't know. And this is one of those mo- this mornings. This morning is uh, the passage we're going to deal with is maybe one of the deepest uh, as far as mystery goes, as far as not fully subject to searching, not fully subject to scrutiny, it is uh, very deep. In fact, the image I want to I offer you to think about through this morning is uh, deep sea scuba diving. Like you, I want you to imagine that this morning is as though we have to descend to the deep, the depth of the sea to understand this part of God. There's not a lot of light down there. So when we go down to where we're going to go down, there's a lot of things that are not being said. You're going to want to be able to see more than you'll be shown because it's so dark. And you can't stay down there for very long. You know, deep sea divers, they go down, but they have to, they can't stay down long because the pressure is so intense. I think this text of scripture is just like that. And you can't just come up from the depth, from Romans 9, where we're going to be this morning. You can't just ascend from the depths of Romans 9 and just pop up to the surface and, and uh, it's not conducive for that. It, it's far more conducive for you to thoughtfully just allow it to be with you thoughtfully as you slowly ascend the, in deep sea scuba diving. So I suppose you can get in a, a submarine and go deeper, and they have. But in the scuba environment, the world record was recently set. It was about 1,000 feet, 1,089 feet and four inches, I think, off the coast of Egypt. It took this, the diver 20 minutes to get down to that depth. You know how long it took him to get back to the surface? 15 hours because of the pressure. That's how we should handle these parts of the word. Like, I don't want us to jump. We're going to get down there quick and the sermon will be over and it'll be time to come up. And I just, it's typically, it's classically, especially I would say if, uh, maybe this is more autobiographical than anything else, but if you're a young man and you are into the things of the Bible, this passage of scripture can do more harm than good if you just take it up and decide to do all sorts of things with it. Um, come up slow. All right. All right, there's my big warning. Oh, and so let's go. 
Um, a quick summary. So the ninth chapter up to verse 16. Paul is dealing with his kinsmen, his brothers according to the flesh is what he calls them, the, his fellow Israelites. So he has, through chapters 1 through 8, explained the workings of God that we call the gospel very clearly. Explained, uh, he's explained our fallen condition. He's explained our need for Christ. He's explained that we receive the blessings of Christ through faith alone because Christ did all the work and there's nothing that we can do to be deserving of the gift of Christ, but it's through his gift and our faith that is received and the Spirit works to continue to sanctify over and above the gift of salvation that we receive through Christ. All of that comes through faith. All of that comes by Christ. And that was a problem, he's assuming in the ninth chapter, that's a problem as though it could be a problem. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful gift. Nonetheless, to his kinsmen who had for over a thousand years uh, in, come to believe that the gift of God was something that was woven into their religious structure of observance, of being Jewish, this was very hard for them to celebrate about. Because it was being, the gift of God was being released from this structure, from the temple. It was being released to the world. And they felt marginalized, is how they felt. But it did not make sense to them that God would pour so much attention and affection and energy into them over a thousand years, and then all of a sudden, in their estimation, all of a sudden, just give it to the world. Just reduce it to Jesus. That might be their attitude. And by the time you're in verse 16, Paul says essentially this. It's upon, because of God's mercy that people have the gift of God, not because of their effort or their desire or their exertion. It's because of his mercy. It's always been because of his mercy. So why do you have a problem with God's mercy falling on other people? That's kind of the implied to his brethren. If it's always been God's mercy... What's your problem? Because you never had it by anything other than God's mercy. Now, I should say that Paul is going, I believe, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of I believes on this. Is, I believe Paul is going deep here primarily because there is a heart issue at, among his kinsmen. I'm saying I don't think they have an intellectual problem with the gospel. I think they have an emotional problem with God. They have a problem with God. It's not that they don't understand his gospel. Anybody, if it was just a, a problem of understanding, you'd have been jumping up and down and celebrating by the eighth chapter. The eighth chapter solves any kind of intellectual confusion about the gospel. Now Paul's simply working with the heart. These are people who are upset at God because God has given away something that some part of themselves they feel. Okay? And here we go. Let's pick up in verse 17 and 18. Paul has just said this sentence in 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then he adds this new idea. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Say it a little bit differently. Just as the Lord dispenses mercy, so also he hardens according to his will. This is important, according to his will. In the middle of this, his will is given, right? For this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that what? And that through you, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So there's... There is some mystery here, right? If we go down to the depths and we're being shown this thing, there's some mystery that God apparently hardens whoever he wills just like he shows mercy on whomever he wills. But it is not that as though his, his will is some kind of capricious, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's not, he's just, he, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. It's not that sort of thing. It seems to be conscribed around the fact that God has this grand will to make his name great to all the peoples. Nonetheless, when we descend into the dark place and we look at God, we see that there exists in God an absolute power in every sphere of the human soul. His will is absolutely sovereign in the realm of mercy, and in the realm of hardness, I call it disbelief. I don't, I don't know exactly what to call it. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our sin. Okay, God is not in the inventor of sin. Sin is still disobedience. Sin is still sin. It's wrong. It's evil. But it is not freedom from the sovereign realm of God. This is the difference. You know, it, it, you can think of it as... A, from your perspective as a child, when a child rebels against their parents, they are expressing in some way, shape, or form some relative sovereignty. That's what all disobedience is. All disobedience, all rebellion, all rioting, all resistance, all kind of warfare, all of these different ways that individuals or peoples revolt against an authority is, is a way of saying, you are not the boss of me. That's what disobedience is. Disobedience to before the Lord is us declaring that the Lord is not the boss of us. He said, thou shalt not, and we said, but we will. What Paul is saying here is that, so maybe when the child rebels against the parent, okay, maybe there is some relative sovereignty being expressed there. It's frustrating the parent, slowing things down. It's getting in the way of the will of the parent. Okay? With God, you cannot, in your disobedience, frustrate his will. You would like to think that you could be disobedient in so as to get out of the palm of his hand. You can never escape the palm of God's hand. That's what he's saying. He's saying, in your expression of disobedience, God, if it violates his will, can take you and harden you so that it plays to his advantage. God will play you to the advantage of his will. 
That's what he's saying. His name will be great among the nations. It will be, nothing will frustrate it. God is sovereign. It's according to his will. You notice how many times will shows up. Even in 18, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You can imagine, uh, well, I'll just read it. This is how people react. This is how, again, there's already a heart issue that's at work among his brethren that are causing him to write this, okay? The entire ninth chapter is, being, is predicated on the fact that they're not getting it because of a heart issue, okay? So I, I even wonder if Paul is pulling them deep just to expose the heart issue. I actually think that may be what's happening. So you get to the 19th verse. I'll read 19 and 20. He's presuming their response. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You hear, obviously you hear the tone of that. I just gave it to you. I guess the question is, even absent of my voice, can you hear the tone in that? He begins the, the conversation in verse 6 with, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then the next question he presumes is in 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, he's dealing with what he thinks is a hard issue. And so now we're at, well, how can we get blame then? If God's just going to harden our hearts, like, then why are we to blame for the things that we do wrong? That's, that's, that's in their mind. If you can't resist his will, then how are we to blame? I guess what I'm saying is, is there's a way that you could have a different tone with the Lord and maybe ask this and get a different answer from Paul than what you're about to get. Okay? I suppose there's a very child, childish, innocent way that a child could say to the Holy Father, Lord, I don't understand. If you hardened the heart of Pharaoh, is he responsible? where the Lord might say, my child, sit down. Let's talk about it. It's not what they're doing. You can tell. Paul's response, Paul's giving them their voice and then responding to the voice he gave them. Okay? He just, he knows his brethren. So at verse 19, why does he still find fault? He's kind of in hands up in the air, right? Who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Paul is almost certainly reaching back to Genesis chapter 2 when God molded the man from the earth. He's using the same Greek verb there that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses in Genesis 2 to say God molded man from the dust of the earth. He's pulling them back saying, do you understand your insolence? When in... When you demand to know from God everything he's doing all the time, when you put God in the seat and you serve as judge and jury, this is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the people who have not decided what they're going to think about God now. As though God owes us 
satisfactory answers for how he behaves in the deepest depths of the will of mankind, places more complicated than the weather. We go to him expecting flat, good answers that satisfy us in our finiteness. It's almost as though Paul is saying, you are barely like him. Oh, dirt. Man, Adam is dirt. Adam received, Adam's name is earth. We are dirt kind. And we're being reminded of it here. Does that which is formed say to the one that formed it, why have you made me thus? There's just some point, some point at which the thing created must worship the creator. Where is that point? I think in this place of scripture, Paul is more concerned about the tone, the tone of their soul, the disposition of the person. I, and I would say in general, when you get to this part in Romans, and, or whenever you get to a place, whenever you get to a place where people are, they don't understand what God is doing and they're not going to worship him until he gives them a satisfactory answer. Okay? So that's, that's often in our experience. Where some, sometimes, sometime in your life, you're going to be confronted with something that God has introduced into your realm and in your finiteness, and in your limitation, and in your lack of wisdom, and in your frailty of faith, you're not going to understand why God has done that. And some part in your spirit says, I'm not going any further until he gives me a good answer. I think that... (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of scholastic individuals who come here and they mine this for a lot of really interesting theology. I think the most interesting theology here is the demand of humankind to be humble in light of God. That's it. Humble yourself. You will never understand what God has done. If he were to explain it to you, you would, hit the, you would reach capacity before he'd even got to the end of his finger of his will and his rationale. You would be at, you'd be bored or mentally dead. And he would just be getting started. His story of why he did something would start with, well, first the earth cooled. You know, I mean, it's a long story. And Paul is dealing with their heart. If you are going to continue to say why to God and why to God and why to God, whatever, okay, so for them, it's, it's why has the promise, which was so safely secure in the infrastructure of the Jewish faith and the design and the religiosity and the form and the function of all of that and the priesthood and the clothing and the rules and the culture, why would God displace it out of that and just spread it to the whole world without our permission? That's their attitude. And when that's your attitude, you are not in the place to get a real answer. You're in the place to be told, you are not God. And his will will not be challenged. 
this is so deep. This is, I, I, I mean, deep like, like a diver. Even Paul begins to use hypotheticals. Verses 21 through 24, even Paul speaks in hypotheticals. It's though he, he doesn't even know with clarity what's happening. 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Simple question. For people who are made in God's image, this is a very humbling moment because the clay and the potter are not the same. You know, there's a way that we are made in God's image and then there's a way that we are so unlike him as though we were clay and he was the potter. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, who he's called, not just Jews, but also from Gentiles. So let me, this is what he's saying. He's saying, notice, before I even say what he's saying, notice the centrality of his will in the midst of these decisions. What does God want to do? God wants to make the riches of his glory known to his vessels of mercy. That's what he wants to do. And in light of that, Paul is saying, can the potter make a beautiful vessel of wrath, sit it on a podium and knock it over to make his riches of his glory visible to the vessels of his mercy? Can he do that? Sure. Can he bear with great patience? Can he weave? He's, he's implicitly speaking Pharaoh here, okay? Can he, I mean, Pharaoh looked blessed. Pharaoh looked mighty. Pharaoh looked great. Pharaoh looked wise. Pharaoh had a great army. Pharaoh had, it's as though the Lord meticulously doted with great patience on Pharaoh, a vessel of wrath, and tremendous amount of, ten, of attention so that when the Lord pushed the vase over, it got everyone's attention. It's as though, can the Lord make you a firework that would explode? so that other people might see. Yes. We're supposed to think yes. What's at the center of it is God's will. Okay, I should say... Um, this has been the formative theological problem in my life for over 20 years. Like, I came back to Christ in college, and I hit this like uh, I got thrown through a fan. And so for 20 years, I have been weaving in and out of this. Uh, there were five years I told myself I cannot talk or think about it because it got to the point, like poison. Everywhere I looked in the Bible, I'm like, ha-ha, ha-ha. I had gone for years without even worshiping. <laughs> for, for God to love the world. I mean, to pervert John 3.16, lay it on the bed for an argument like this, is to get the entire faith backwards. 
It's I had the theological bends is what I had. I went deep and then I rushed up to the surface. And so I won't do that with you, okay? So I'm not going to give some people what you want. Um, I think uh, a major problem with... The room is not all alike. So in this room, there are people who... Simple folk. And stuff like this gets in their way. And I admire... Let me say it this way. Can you imagine a chemist? A chemist who delves into the deep dark recesses of the science of chemistry and determines that everything that you and I do is nothing more than a chemical reaction. If I laugh, there's a chemical reaction for that. If I want to eat Reese's Pieces, well, there's a chemical reaction. Distinct chemical type of reaction that desires Reese's Pieces over Twix. It exists. I happen to have both of these (laughs) resonant simultaneously in my body. Okay, but it's a chemical reaction. If I'm fearful, it's a reaction. If I flight or fight, just reactions. Can you imagine a chemist who has knowledge in a big 10-pound brain and can delve into these places that to regular people, we don't go. And he knows all of this, and then he comes back up to the surface of life where life is really lived and says, your life is artificial. All it is is arbitrary chemical reactions. That's ridiculous. That's just stupid. What, is life not real? Obviously life is real. We can go to these depths, these momentary deep dives. We're down there for 20 minutes, and we see things in the dark as they vaguely appear, and we go, holy cow, God can harden hearts. And, and then we, we rush to the surface, and we say things like, You're, you'd have no free will. You have Does it feel to you Take the most regular person in here. Does it feel to you like you have free will? I think you do. Do you feel that way? Do you feel real? I, I don't, I'm not, maybe I am. I, I have to, I prayed on the way into this and I got to pray. I don't want to be unnecessarily, I, I do want to be a, appropriately harsh on theological silliness. And I want to call it what it is. Do you feel real? Yes. Do you have real thoughts? Do you have a will? Do, if you're a parent, do your children have wills? And let me ask you this. If you're so sure of that, does it seem unusual to you that God refers to himself as a father and us as children? That that is the preeminent image driving the narrative of Scripture. And every now and then we get to these deep places where it says, and there's a case when God gets to brass tacks about his will, he'll do what he decides to do for the glory of his name. Any questions? That. I just don't want us to be the, the, the chemist's who turns the whole world upside down because he found out a neat thing. Life is real. You're real. Your thoughts are real. Your faith is real. 
we are relying on God's mercy. Not on, will, not on our exertions or our desires, but on his mercy. That, that's so overwhelmingly the subject here. Okay. I, I want to offer a little bit of help. What, what on the 15-hour trip back to the surface... What, what does one bring? What does one bring with him? This is after 20 years of thought. Uh, this is what I would say. Number one, again, I don't think either side is going to like this uh, because it's not about that. Number one, God is for simple people. God is for simple people. He's for children and fishermen meaning everything, anything of significant consequence in the revelation of God makes sense to children and fishermen. That's what I think. And I think the church should never hobby in an area that children and fishermen and praying grandmas don't think is at the center. In fact, I think this the, the, the church, the people of God, the great gathering of God's kingdom on earth, this humanity, we are an odd, odd group of people where the, the learned must bring what they've learned to the regular people for validation. Not so much the other way around. If it doesn't, if it doesn't check with the fishermen and the children and the praying grandmas of this world, I just don't think we should have a lot of time for it. So, after 20 years of repentance and frustration and finally, finally becoming humble before the Lord and loving his mercy, that's the first thing I can think to say to you. Whatever it's worth. To the simple people in here, God wants to affirm you and love you and say, you are about right. And the kingdom of God is for such as you. You do not need to get interested in this. And if someone comes and knocks your door down about this stuff, you are the adjudicating authority. Okay. Number two. While God's actions and decisions may be mysterious, God's nature is not that mysterious. Let me say that again. While his actions and decisions may be mysterious to us, God's nature has been made clear to us. This, almost this entire book is about the nature of God, not his actual decisions. Not, not the mechanics and the science behind his decisions, but his nature. In other words, we reread narratives of God to learn who he is. And who God is is useful to us in situations. Not, this is not a, situ, a book of situational ethics that give us a predictive nature of what God is going to do next. That's not primarily what it is. It's who he is. In other words, we are supposed to walk away saying God is loving and God is just and God is merciful and God is truth and God is right and God sees the fatherless when we don't. And God sees the person who doesn't know his message and longs to get it to them. And God sees the person who's being abused 
with a heart of a good father. We know so much about his nature, so much about his nature. And yet, when we decide to delve into how God makes decisions, oh, we know so little, so little. It's a recreation for people not doing real ministry. The Lord takes a newborn infant from a family. Are you going to go in there and explain to them why God did that? Are you going to do that? Or are you going to go in there and tell them who God is? You're going to tell them who God is. You're going to say, God is loving. I don't know why he did this. I don't know what the mystery behind this. I do know this. God is loving. He loves you. God is a father, and God gave his only son, so he knows how you're feeling. Because he's been there, and he longs to be with you right now. He's not put you away from him. He's not a hater of people. I think, Paul, this is a deep dive to, you want to know how God makes his decisions? Fine, I'll take you to see God in his decisions. And you go to this dark place, and it says, you know what, when it comes to the issues of God's preeminent will, okay, his preeminent will, not what color do you paint the house, okay, God's not going to soften and harden according to the color green, or anything like that, but to God's desire to make his name great among the peoples, God's going to do, and consistent with his nature, what God does for the glory of his name. And I praise him in that. Number three, God's will is singularly important. Singularly important. If all of this is spinning around God's will, then we should want to be in God's will. Everything will make sense inside of God's will, or more will make sense inside of God's will. Our difficult challenges, when we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, very often we invite him into our will, the glorious riches of our will, and then we get frustrated because God has called us into his will. People... Uh, with people with the greatest spirits of freedom in God, the greatest free will before the Lord, pray prayers like this, Lord, your will be done. Do you ever notice? That prayer honors our free will to come to us and exhort us to pray, Lord, make your will my will. Number four, God's will is immensely and immeasurably larger than you or me. It's a big thing that's going to happen, and it's not going to fail. I'll give you a good, good classic example of this. When we're talking about issues like this, and someone invariably begins to think, well, what about the innocent uh, African in the jungle who's never heard? This sort of question comes up oftentimes in these sorts of things. You see, what we want to do is we want to know what God did. We've abandoned his nature, and we want to know what God did. To which I guess if the Lord pulled us very deep on that question, if we had a hard heart on that question, God could eventually say, well, I can tell you what I did. 
I said to my church, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I don't know why there is an unbelieving African in the jungle who hasn't heard, because I faithfully entrusted my spirit and my power to the church. They haven't gone. What do you think is going to happen to them? I I mean, we get there, and we all cry for mercy. God's will is immensely and immeasurably larger than us. And it will not fail. Finally, this. I'll finish with this. In fact, y'all can come on up if you want. I think the best thing to do, the best thing to bring up from the depths of these deep chasms in Scripture, and there's several. There's several places like this, cracks in the surface of the Word that run deep. The best things to bring up is humility is a, is a grand and grave sense that God's mercy sense of just graciousness that God is in you that you that you're hearing like even if you're not in Christ right now even if you like the religion of God of which I speak is mine and not yours It's been spoken over you. Like there's a God who loves mankind, who sees what's wrong, has sent his son, who gave his life so that you might have repair and restoration and his Holy Spirit in eternal dwelling with him. You've heard it. His grace. May we be humble as we ascend back to the surface big fans of God's will. May we pray thy will be done. Let me pray, Lord. Help us in that way. Help us in those regards. Lord, I even pray, forgive me if any part of this was not of you. I ask, Lord, uh, for humility in our fellowship. When we get to these places of Scripture, care care for one another, honor and trust of you. May we be able to go deep like this and come up more in love with you. Thankful that you are not weak before mankind. You will not let your your plan be thwarted. You will make your name great throughout the earth. We pray thy will be done. Amen.